In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, for your, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've been working hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So I had this um, really weird dream last this past week. It's not that weird. It's sort of a variation of theme, a dream I've had before, but it was, it's a bit of a nightmare. Uh, I was at a church committee meeting, and that's not the nightmare part, but it's the fact that I attended the, night, the, 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 the uh, committee meeting without any clothes on. So I'm not going to tell you who was at the meeting because I'd never be able to make eye contact with you again. Anyway, so I'm sitting there like, oh, how could I do this? What did I think this thing was going to be on Zoom? And, and, and the weird part, or at least the weirder part, was that no one else at the meeting seemed to notice. No one brought it up. Not directly, not indirectly, by saying, 
do our bylaws include something about a dress code, such as be dressed? No, nothing. But it's not like that made it okay. I'm sitting there smiling and nodding, and, but I have no idea what's being said or talked about because I had no idea what was on the agenda. I just wanted extra copies of it and some tape. You know, and nothing other than the fact that I have no clothes on is preoccupying me, all right? So you don't have to be Freud to analyze what's going on here. I mean, the dream expresses anxieties I may have about being ill-prepared, uh, a fear of being exposed. In fact, I feel a little self-conscious even sharing that I had a, these dreams. But you know, you have, I had them back when I was in school. You know, the, uh, there's always that little underlying anxiety. Anyway, but then, all right, so it's a little revealing to say, to, to, to uh, reveal this, but you know, this week I was like, oh, I gotta have an introduction for my sermon. I don't have an introduction. They're gonna know I'm ill-prepared. I'm, I'm gonna feel like Isaiah up there. Woe to me, oh wait, hey, make, tie that in, because that is, that, that feeling is also what's sort of driving that passage. That there is the, the, this underlying anxiety. And it finds expression in Isaiah, finds its expression in the Gospel of Luke, and it finds its expression right there at the beginning in Genesis. Uh, it, is, it is the feeling that humanity has in its, the immediate response to the fall, right? Which is sort of remarkable. Because that is a story about, I mean, it starts with God giving humanity this massive responsibility. God creates the universe and says, okay, you guys, you go, go run this thing for me, right? Oversee the whole project the way I would. And there's no indication in the text that humanity ever feels overwhelmed by this job description. In fact, if there's a problem with the arrangement, it's the fact that the humans feel like God is selling them short, right? I mean, all the serpent has to do is present that forbidden fruit as an opportunity for promotion. And we're like, hmm, you know what, snake? When I first saw you, I was like, I don't know where this guy's head ends and his tail begins, but I'm going to tell you right now, I like where your head's at. I like the way you're thinking. You're right. I've got more potential. I know, I, granted, I mean, ruling over the birds of the air and land, creatures of the field and the uh, fish of the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've got more to offer. So thank you, snake. I will take a bite. And at that moment, the text says, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. And as in my dream... This becomes an all-consuming preoccupation. They're not, it's not their disobedience, not the fact that God had given them everything but this one tree, and they you know, violate that. It's not their guilt. It's their nakedness. You know, I've always assumed that they hid from God because they're hoping that God you know, wouldn't find them. But if that were the case, when God shows up and says, where are you? There really is only one answer that you give. And that answer is this. No answer, right? Any answer, any answer beyond that, eh, sorry, you lose. You, you don't hide from somebody and answer that question. But Adam does say, uh, we hid. So it's either that they're, they're missing some of the nuances of hiding or 
that they, that the, that's, it's, the problem is not that they don't want God to find them. It's that they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be exposed. And if that's the case, Adam is not so much, you know, uh, he's not, it's not about not giving himself away. He's pleading for mercy. Please, I'm a fraud. Having to stand there and have you see me and know that you're seeing who I am, we see what a fraud I am. I can't do that. And Isaiah can relate. He has this vision of the throne room of heaven. The holiness of God is so resplendent, so overpowering. The angels hovering about keep their faces and their feet covered. It's almost too much for the angels. Too much for full exposure. It's while they're staying partially hidden that they're capable of responding positively to all that glory and holiness. That's what enables them to sing their praises and to sing them at a volume that shakes walls and door frames. Praise that registers on the Richter scale. You know, put yourself in Isaiah's position. None of what he's witnessing is about him. It's not a hostile scene. On the contrary, it's a glorious one. But like Adam and Eve, all Isaiah can think about is how unworthy he is of being there. What he wouldn't do for some underbrush to dive into and hide. Instead, he just feels exposed. Woe to me. I am ruined. You know, returning to Genesis, when God learns what the humans have done, God banishes them from the garden. God, and God offers a summary of the world that they have inherited by their actions. Again, we tend to, I think, traditionally sort of interpret this as God's kind of punishment. But in light of what we see in Isaiah, it could as, it could as easily be understood as a sort of strange act of mercy. Because to remain in the garden at that point would only expose their shame. They'd never want to leave that hiding place in the undergrowth. So a world full of thorns, full of sweat, full of pain, full of conflict. I mean, it's no picnic, but at least it can provide a distraction from that internal problem. Doesn't take away the shame of nakedness, but in a world of thorns and sweat, hiding at least feels normal. Isaiah cries out that he's a man of unclean lips. Before this vision, that hadn't been a problem. As he said, I live among a people of unclean lips. It's being in the midst of glory. That's the problem. Peter experiences something similar. You know, of course, whereas where Isaiah is pulled up uh, into this realm of uh, glory and splendor, here in Luke... It starts up very much in the world of thorns and sweat. Peter and his crew are cleaning their nets, not to prepare to go out, but because they've been out. In fact, they, they might still be out, given how poorly things went. But as I learned this week, those kind, that kind of the, the nets that they have are made to be used at night. Because once the sun's up, the fish can see them and, you know, they'll swim around it. So they are there 
because I just had to give up. And then, of course, there's some commotion coming their way, a crowd, and everybody's vying for the attention of some guy who's at the center of all that ruckus. I imagine people always finding something to get worked up about, but then the guy climbs aboard the boat and asks Peter if he could drop anchor offshore a bit and, you know, Peter shoes the rest of the beetle maniacs away and, and, and does as he says. And sort of works as a little crowd control, right? It's a little offshore uh, between Jesus and this mob, and Jesus then begins to speak. And then when he's done, he tells Peter, it's time to go fish. And all I have to say is, whatever Jesus had been saying before that must have been pretty good. Because given the night that Peter's had, it's, it's surprising he says, oh, why don't you get, catch some fish and shove Jesus out of the boat? But he doesn't. Peter agrees. He simply lets him know, okay, look, don't get your hopes up. We've been out all night, and we've got butkus. So, but but we'll, if you say so, we'll go. So they go out, drop their nets, and then the hall is so massive, chaos ensues. Nets threaten to burst. A second boat rushes in to help. Water overflows the sides of these boats uh, that, that are overwhelmed by the catch. You know, for someone like Peter, he's, you know, he knows that this business has ups and downs, that you can spend all night fishing and coming up empty, you know, and he also knows that sometimes you can get lucky. You time it just right. You bring in your haul, slap each other on the back, go home, hug the wife, give her a big kiss, and tell her to get out the good wine. But this is not like that. This is not just an exceptional catch. The fact that the nets nearly burst, the boats nearly sink, indicates that a catch like this is just outside the realm of possibility in a world of thorns and sweat. Something more is going on here. Again, like I was saying at the beginning, this is what contrasts, what happens next is what contrasts with the passage in Nazareth. Nazareth, they're all looking for little perks and favors and no, it's not about the way God gets you advantages in the world of, of, of thorns and sweat. Jesus isn't just some sort of lottery ticket. And, that's, and Peter does not respond as though Jesus is. Nothing in the text suggests that they even cash in on this big haul. Because Peter can see this is about something more. And like Isaiah, he finds it distressing. The difference is that while Isaiah is sort of drawn out of the world of thorns and sweat into this realm of glory, Peter has discovered that the realm of glory has invaded this world. It's here in our midst. And he feels exposed. Go away from me, Lord, says Peter, for I am a sinful man. But of course, this isn't the extent of the parallels between the two passages. These are both stories of calling. Neither story makes any attempt to downplay what they witness. God does not respond to Isaiah and say, whoa, 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 just relax, pal. Uh, Don't be so hard on yourself. Your lips are fine. No. What they both get wrong is that God, is the idea that God exposes them to to all this glory in order to condemn them. 
No. We were created to bear God's image, not to shrink or hide when in the presence of glory, but to revel in it and to reflect it to the world around us, to bear witness to it, to catch people up in it. Peter discovers that this stranger who brings the realm of glory into our world of thorns and sweat does not condemn him, but calls him. And so rather than Jesus going away from him, Jesus leads him and Peter leaves everything to go with him. Now, this does not mean that Peter totally gets it from here on out. He continues to struggle to make sense of glory's invasion in this world. You know, for example, when Jesus takes them up the mountain and, and Jesus is transfigured before them, Peter makes this dumb suggestion that, oh, let's build some booths so we can just camp out up here, away from that world of thorns and sweat. So he misses the point. And sometimes he won't see that glory at all when it's right in front of him. The night Jesus washes the disciples' feet, you know, he'll initially refuse. He can only see Jesus humiliating himself. You know, what, what overwhelmed him on the, that morning in the seaside, he's totally blind to that evening in the upper room. But this humble act of service is glory. It's that realm. It's that realm the angels shake with their songs of praise. It's that very realm invading our world of thorns and sweat. And then, of course, yeah, the crucifixion. If anything says, this is a world of thorns and sweat, it is that. And if you try to fight that, you will just be exposed. You'll be left naked. But there too is glory. The angels cover their faces. So ultimately, this is what it means to respond to that call. That's what the disciples need to have eyes to see. You know, we don't come to it with the expectations of the Nazarenes to view discipleship as this inside track for special treatment. And it doesn't guarantee visions of the throne room of heaven. And, you know, given Isaiah's experience, maybe that's for the best. No. It means this. It means recognizing while this world is full of thorns and sweat, an invasion is happening. In acts of love and service, the realm of glory is operating. And you are be call being called to participate. Yes, you. Yes, we know you're naked, you're vulnerable. Lips are unclean, you got guilt, you wanna hide. But don't let that dictate your life. You were made for so much more. You were made for glory. Name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.